Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. These chats are fun, informative, and hopefully always interesting. In today's episode, I speak with Yao Koifman, co-founder and senior partner of Leisure Development Partners. We discuss the impact of COVID on the leisure and attraction sector, the fusion of leisure and retail space that will be accelerated by the pandemic, and we also talk a little bit about learning Spanish. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Yale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that you could spare some time to come on, so thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. <laughs> Maybe you won't be looking forward to this bit, because this is the bit that everyone doesn't like, but it's the icebreaker question round. I, I think I've been quite easy on you, Yale, to be honest. Okay, let's start. If you were stranded on a desert island, what is the one luxury item that you would miss the most? Oh, it's got to be the fizz. Champagne? Yes. Yeah, I knew that we would get on. You are a lady yeah, after my yeah. own heart. I mean, I, mean I, I, I could argue and say, yeah, I might miss the really good cheese and bread and stuff. But, you know, you can always in a desert island make, find some way to make cheese or make bread. But you can't make your own fizz. So that would, that would be it. Great answer. We're going to get on well. Okay. <laughs> I have to ask you this. What is your favorite attraction? Well, um, my favorite park of all times is Islands of Adventure in Orlando. Hands down. That uh, just is the, the best park, in my opinion. I think, on the other hand, in regards to favorite ride, I really enjoy the Chicra roller coaster at Bush Gardens. Oh, God, that is just, good. It's good because it's um, it's kind of a blend of, uh, uh, what's it called? Oblivion up at Alton Towers. But Oblivion, like, ends too soon. Okay. And then Chicra keeps going. So I, I just really enjoy that one as a, as, a, as a roller coaster. Bush Gardens is one of the best places that I've ever visited. It is a great park. Yeah. Just love it. I haven't been for a really long time. Mm. I went with my parents a very, very long time ago. Oh, it's a great place. Oh, good. I wasn't expecting that as well. Okay. <laughs> um, back to the stupid ones. If you could only eat one sandwich for the rest of time, what sandwich would it be? Huh. Oh. All day breakfast. Oh, that's a good choice. <laughs> that's a good choice. Yes, because so many different fillings. Yeah. yeah. And you can have it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I thought about this way too hard before I asked you. And I and I thought, oh, I'd go with like a ham and crisp sandwich because then I'd have ham and I'd mm-hmm. also get crisps as well. You definitely outtrumped me on the sandwich choice there. <laughs> All right. And then the last one is right. I want to know your unpopular opinion. So something that you believe to be true that almost nobody else agrees with you on. OK, well, I'm going to qualify with this with saying um, it was nobody else in the UK agrees with me on. OK. Um, <laughs> as an American living in the UK and all that kind of stuff. Um, I personally do not agree that university education should be paid for. Uh, for all university students. Um, I don't think it should be covered by the government. I think you can have assistance. You can have government loans. But realistically, not everyone necessarily deserves to go to university or should be going to university. And if they're not willing to invest in themselves, why should we as the taxpayers invest in them? Gosh, 
that's my perspective. I, I mean, this it, I mean, this could be quite controversial, yeah. I, I, but I'm glad that you raised it. It's interesting, actually, because we did have um, our last guest on, Simon Jones from Digital Visitor. Was also yeah. we also talked a lot about university and yeah. his takes. His take on university was that um, not everybody needs to go. So it wasn't about the payment of it. It was not everybody needs to go to university. You can still have a brilliant career if you choose not to take that path as well. So, but but I do think there's an element of it which is actually asking people to invest in themselves. You know, and clearly, as one who came from the U.S., I'm not saying that those tuition fees make any sense whatsoever. They're way, way too high in terms of the American universities. Um, So that's not the right system either. But there is an element of investing in yourself. So if it's 100% paid for by the government then the students aren't taking a stake in their own future. I mean, when I was at university, I was still working 40-hour weeks while going to classes. And you don't really see that here. No, it's true. I mean, I can't comment on university. I didn't actually go, so I chose the route that Simon talked uh-huh. about and um, I decided that I wanted to go out and work and, and yeah. kind of work my way up, which was it was easier then in the career that I, that I chose. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I worked the whole way through college. Um, I had... T- I was going to say I had terrible jobs through college, but I had a a few terrible jobs through college. Actually, my favourite one was in retail, which is something that we're going to talk a little bit about today. I worked at Argos. Um, Yeah, I was I worked at Argos as a Saturday girl. I was a picker and then I was on the tills and then customer (laughs) service. And then I got promoted to jewellery. Ooh, big step up. I was the pinnacle. It was the pinnacle of my Argos career. Thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate it. So, um. What I'd love to do, I really want to, there's, there's a topic that I want to focus on for our talk today. Mm-hmm. But I'd love it if you could share a little bit about what Leisure Development Partners does and, and maybe what like a typical project looked, looks like for you. If you have a typical project. Well, I was going to say, I'm going to preface this conversation with, with this little bit here with a bit that with, there is no such thing as a typical project. Our specialty is really in market and financial analysis for any forms of leisure attractions. So that can range from small little specialty museums to major theme park, you know, multi-theme park regional, you know, destination resorts, um, arenas and stadium and aquaria and anything that's built, which has to do with how people spend their leisure time. And we do work globally. So the majority of our work is for new projects and new ideas. I'd say probably about 70% of it. Normally a client will come to us with an idea and they want to know if it will work financially. So we do the market testing for it and the concept testing and, and all that kind of stuff um, to get to, the at the end of the day, how many people are going to visit, what are they going to spend, what are the related operating costs, what's the final profit and loss at the end of the day over a 10-year period of time, and then given the level of investment, is there any return on investment or is this just a bad project for the market? So that's kind of the bread and butter of what we do. We also, every once in a while, will work with existing attractions to improve their performance, as well as with uh, banks or private equity funds that are looking to do acquisitions okay. of existing facilities. Would you also work with attractions that are looking to maybe expand into different locations as well? Would that be? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's, um, along those lines, there's two things we do actually. With existing attractions, if they're looking to expand, you know, period, as in not just a new ride, but an entire new land in a theme park, for example, or adding a hotel or adding a water park as a second gate or something like that. We would definitely work with them along those lines to see, you know, how it would work and what the impact would be and if it was worth the investment. 
Um, and then also with existing attractions, you know, when they're, if they're looking to roll out, we could do a rollout strategy for them. Or in some cases, if they have potential partners, like we've done a lot of work with Kidzania, for example. So a lot of times with Kidzania is first looking at, looking at new locations. We will actually do the feasibility study for that location to see if they want to progress or not to the next level. Amazing. That takes me to what I really want to focus our conversation mm-hmm. on today. And it's... It's actually about it's around the white paper that you that you pushed out a little while ago. So you released a, a white paper which is called COVID and Beyond, the evolving relationship of leisure and retail. Mm-hmm. And in it, you discuss the impact of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, what that's had on what that impact has been on the leisure and attraction sector and how this could impact the retail and leisure relationship, which I think is really exciting. Um, I guess it kind of starts with the decline across physical retail sectors due to the rise in e-commerce I guess that's the starting point of this conversation what what was it that prompted the white paper and can you tell us a little bit about can you tell us a little bit about what's in it and and where those thoughts have come from yeah yeah no sure I mean the white paper was um it was basically just taking a you know sort of a state of the industry of where we are now post-covid and what it means for attractions and retail and how they can work together we've been doing work with uh, retail, not retailers, but retail mall owners and developers a lot over the last, I'd say, five or six years um, as they're starting to realize that they do need to do something more, that just at the anchor stores and, st- and stuff like that is not enough to get people in. And so they were already seeing the writing on the wall in terms of the increase in online retail and, you know, less, more spending online and less in bricks and mortar establishments. But the challenge all along has been the fact that they still very much have that bricks and mortar mindset, which is an attraction has to come in and pay rent. Yes. It's just filling space. They're looking at attractions or leisure as tenants. Um, and so one of the reasons that we decided to write this white paper was say, OK, well, let's look at where we are now and let's look at what people want to do. And, the, the you know, taking aside the online thing, which was happening anyway, Because of COVID, there are three key things that actually really came out of it. One is you have a lot more people that weren't used to shopping online that became used to shopping online. So it was an exponential growth. So not just the growth we'd seen over the last five or six years, but a lot of people that were not not really used to it, that, you know, older generation that might never have used Amazon before, that might never have, you know, ordered, you know, click and collect from, you know, Sainsbury's or whatever the case might be, we're finally starting to do it. And we're really realizing how easy it was, not just to order online, but also return, which has always been a, a thing that people were worried about. So that was one thing that came out of COVID. The other thing was the incredibly high uptake of streaming as entertainment and in-home. And, you know, the fact that, I don't know if you, if you noticed this in, a, in the white paper or not, but I was shocked. You know, Disney Plus launched and it reached its you know, five-year target for subscriptions within six months. I, it, mean, I mean, it's mad, right? But they, but the, but when they launched, who knew that we were going to be in the situation that we were in? So that clearly had a huge impact on it. Totally COVID and Netflix as well. You know, you just the amount of subscribers, I think just, again, exponential. And, and, and again, the thing here is it's not just more people doing it. It's people that had never considered doing it before. So again, older generation, uh, you know, parents who would have just maybe let, let their kids do it all the time now are now saying, oh, actually, there's interesting stuff for me, too. And part of what helped that was the fact that a lot of these online platforms were developing their own content as well. So we're seeing a little bit more of that. So there's the, there's 
the increase in online and in, in-home online entertainment, which was not just movies and films, but gaming as well, uh, etc. And then the third thing was the fact that people were locked up and they couldn't do anything. And that, yes, there is hesitation about going out to attractions and crowded facilities and people are nervous. But when you saw how quickly, at least here in Europe, how quickly when things opened up, people were going back out to attractions and theme parks. Um, You know, we spoke with quite a few different operators throughout Europe that said, actually, the moment they opened up, it wasn't that bad. They were at lower capacity, but they were doing pre-bookings throughout the entire week. And people were just, they were adjusting. They were readjusting their schedule so that they could go during times where they automatically, in the old days, would have said, oh, just on the weekend. So that hunger just to go out and do things socially, especially in outdoor experiences um, and other areas that you can socially distance a bit more, um, was very, very apparent in regards to August and uh, September when things, everything basically opened up. So those three coming together, when you look at that and the re- from the retail perspective, retailers need attractions now. They've lost their core constituency and they're the importance of getting forms of leisure attractions into retail settings or any sort of commercial mixed-use developments, it's much, much higher than it was uh, six months ago or a year ago. I mean, personally, I always thought it was important, but now they are recognizing it. So it's kind of changing to this shift in perspective from the retail developer side. Um, And that's a lot of what our white paper kind of lays out is, you know, what are the benefits of bringing in attractions, but also what are the key things that have to be considered? And why would you do that? You know, why would you, as an as a landowner, as a developer, say, okay, I'm not going to get a Debenhams in for the anchor store anymore because, you know, they're closing them all down, but I need to fill that space, but it's not going to be a commercial tenant. So at which point do I make that investment? That, that's that's the heart and soul of the, of the paper, basically. So if we, so if we take, uh, let's take Westfield Stratford as an example as a, as a, of a shopping centre, a shopping centre, shopping mall. You've got a real mix of leisure facilities there. So I think there's a bowling a bowling, a bowling alley, there's a cinema, there's a gaming centre, there's a casino. What other types of attractions are going to be a really natural fit for this? And what are the benefits for attractions going into these, these spaces? Yeah, and, and so I think what's interesting what you just brought up there is, and this is where there's, there's a lot of times there's a disconnect. So bowling, cinema... Um, they're very standard, aren't they? They're, they're, they're the ones that you expect to... They're standard, and they're, those are what we would term commercial leisure. You know, they can pay rent, basically. You know, it might be slightly more of an anchor rent, but they're mm-hmm. commercial leisure, you know, commercial ventures that are pretty standard. They also don't really have much drawing power. You know, cinemas typically, you'd say a catchment is 20 minutes drive tops. Bowling, even less so, you know, <laughs> depending on, on the location where you are. But I think, you know, Westfield Stratford is a good example because it is in a unique situation where, you know, it's the east, east side of London. But it also has some pretty strong competitors nearby in regards to Lakeside, for example. Lakeside has put in a Nickelodeon Park. That I would consider an attraction. Sure. But that's a difference. Um, Attractions, you know, these smaller attractions, and we see some of them on the, you know, the South Bank, for example, Shrek or uh, uh, the London Dungeon, et cetera. Those, Those are actually more attractions. And that means that they have higher drawing power. They can sometimes appeal to tourists, not just resident market. Um, but they also typically have higher operating costs because you need more staff 
they might have higher capital capital investment requirements in the first days as well. So it's not just a simple fit out like a cinema where you just get a you know a bunch of screen sound system and some chairs. So that that's the really really big differences. So if you look at now again looking at Stratford, uh, Stratford uh, so what could you put in there? Well, you'd want to do things there that would actually extend the catchment, the drawing power of the facility itself. We've seen that in places like. Um, you know, Dubai, or they put in the, the Dubai Aquarium into Mall of Dubai, or uh, the Ski Hill in Mall of the Emirates. They were really, in recent years, the forefront of, of putting in major attraction draws. Uh, you see that in the U.S. now with the American Dream Project going on in New Jersey, where they have a water park and a theme park and a ski thing that are going in there. I mean, they're, they're really making clusters of these attractions that can draw from two hours away. That's different. That's a big from, difference, isn't that's it? That's a big difference. And so that's where these mall developers have to start balancing out the benefits versus the cost because they are going to have to invest. They have to put some skin in the game. Uh, most of these attractions are not uh, justifiable as standalone investments. So they have to invest to that in, into the attraction themselves, partner with the attraction operator so that there actually is a benefit to the mall overall. Um, that's where the struggle has been over years is convincing them of that. And I, and I really do see a shift in this uh, these days where they're starting to realize they have to partner. They have to put some investment into it, too. They're not going to have somebody just come in and solve their problem for them and pay them a commercial rent. Yeah, I can see. I mean, I can see there's a huge, you know, a huge difference between, yeah, this is a cinema. This is a standard fit out. Yeah. They kind of come in and they plug they plug their thing into that mm-hmm. hole. But yeah, you know, the, like you mentioned, the Shrek experience, completely different. I mean, it's, it's hugely, hugely different. Sorry, can I just add one thing to that? Yeah, yeah no, no, I was just that, I mean, because you brought up Shrek again, and I forgot to mention, this is also where IP uh, becomes very valuable, uh, intellectual property. So you have Shrek as, as intellectual property, or you have Nickelodeon, and Lakeside as, as an IP as well. That has a sort of a brand recognition that can also increase the drawing power and also can remain relevant as long as new content is put on online. So that's a way to connect the attraction with the in-home entertainment right. as well. Right. So that's where the strength of IP comes in. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got kids that are sitting at home watching Nickelodeon. They make that connection. They have that mom, dad, I want to go here. Uh-huh. And uh, Okay, yeah, of course. So... How do you choose the right partnership? How does a shopping center or an attraction look and work out what who's going to be the best fit for each other? How does that happen? Oh, they hire someone like us. <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant. Uh, no, I think I think it's really really important that um, any you know shopping center that's out there that they don't just take whoever comes knocking. Because that's not necessarily the best fit for them. They have to have a really good understanding of their market, not their shoppers market, but their attractions market. And that's why I was saying it's important to hire, you know, a feasibility consultant that can look at the overall environment available to any attraction that went in there. Also look at the competitive environment, what else is out there. So for example, again, my example from earlier, if you look at Stratford and you look at Lakeside, Lakeside has a Nickelodeon park as part of its development. You would therefore never want to put another Nickelodeon park within Stratford. Yeah. Because you just cannibalize each other. 
Um, and you probably wouldn't want to do an attraction which was targeting the same age range because you'd just be cannibalizing each other. So it's understanding the competitive environment is incredibly important. Um, is, is the key thing. And that helps you sort of strategize and get to a short list of different types that could work. But then the next thing is actually doing a solid feasibility study and, and looking at what the performance could be of the facilities. Uh, you know, how many people, as I said earlier, how many people are coming, how much are they going to spend? You know, what's the potential benefit to the center overall in terms of the impact on other retail tenants and F&B tenants within the mall? Um, all of that is incredibly important. And, and unfortunately, or you know, fortunately for us, uh, that data is not available publicly. You know, the, the KPIs that you use for the analysis uh, is all very confidential. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attractions industry is different that way than others. You know, in the hotel industry, for example, you can purchase reports telling you how, you know, different hotels are working in different markets, you know, what the occupancy rates are, what the average daily rates are all that kind of stuff, that does not exist in the attractions industry. It, oh, okay. it is a function of actually building up your database of KPIs for different markets and different types of attractions over time. Is, is that why, because you, you mentioned in the, the white paper that it's actually really difficult to measure the benefits of entertainment in a retail environment. Is that why? Is that what it comes back to? Just not access to the data? Well, it, it comes down to two things. I mean, one is is making sure that your business plan is actually based on real comparables and real assumptions based on, on real key performance indicators from other locations. That's one. So you actually understand how the attraction itself will work. The second thing is measuring the benefits of the rest of the mall. And part of that depends on the type of attraction. Um, there is some research that's been done saying, for example, if, you know, you go to an attraction in a mall, how much will each of those visitors spend in other locations, but more research could be done. And this is something where the retail industry has been remiss. They don't know their customers as well as the attractions industry do. And when you look at the amount of data that places companies like Merlin or uh, Disney or whatever have, they know who's coming, they know how much they're spending, they know where they're coming from. Retailers aren't that great at that. And they also tend to ask not necessarily the best questions. Yeah, you're right. And and is is that harder when you're in a large mall? you're not going to be as granular about your audience. Does that make sense? So you know, if, if are you relying on, so Westfield, are you relying on Westfield to give you the data about who's coming through Westfield's doors yeah, rather than, yeah. Exactly. And, and the thing is, it is their responsibility and, and it has been for years is a thing. I mean, the, the concept of a mall intercept survey is one of the basics you learn when you're doing, you know, statistics and, and, uh, and everything else at business school. So they've always done this. They're just not asking the right questions. And part of it has to do with the fact that they've never seen leisure as a benefit. So it's never really on their list. So they, they're more concerned saying, okay, you know, who's coming? How, how frequently do you come? What do you spend? But they're not saying, what was your primary reason for coming? You know, right. was it to go to the cinema first? And then did you spend on other things while you were here? Or did you come here first and then you decided to go to the family entertainment center? for example. Yeah. It's it's figuring out what the primary driver is, and that's something that's always been missing from a lot of their surveys. And hopefully now they'll start seeing that there is actually a, a value to that, because if they can get those stats in, then they can justify to their retailers why they might have to pay a little bit of the share for this attraction to come in, because they will benefit as well. Yeah. 
it's hugely beneficial, isn't it, to understand yeah. if someone is coming to the centre to go to the cinema and then they might go to a couple of those shops that are there or if they're coming for the shops. And my guess is that it's kind of flipping. I think it's flipping more towards entertainment. Yeah, for sure. OK, I got I mean, this might not I don't know if this will this will be a good fit for you, actually. But there, I saw something. So there's a, an organisation in Cambridge. They're called Souk. And they have a retail space in Cambridge and they have a retail space in South Moulton Street and I think one on Oxford Street as well. Mm. Basically, they are an adaptive retail space. So you can you can kind of set it up. So if I wanted, for example, if I wanted to run a workshop for, for my agency, mm. I could hire this retail space, kit it all out with all of my kind of they've got screens. You can put up all of your things, you know, all of your branding, et cetera, on, and you can rent it by the hour. So I could rent a retail space in the middle of Cambridge for XX amount per hour. Brilliant. It's a really good opportunity for small organisations to kind of get into a different audience. And I'm thinking about how attractions can maybe reach a different audience or reach a different demographic that wouldn't normally come to their to their venue. Things like museums, for example, could be Mm. spaces like that for doing a kind of pop up museum or a pop up uh, gallery or or that kind of thing. Have you do you do anything like that in terms of that that merge of retail? It's a bit more challenging. Um, I mean, I can see where you're going with it. And I think we will see that we will see some empty retail space, which is being used sometimes for attractions or experiences. But it's all this. I mean, it's going to be done on the cheap Mm. because the thing is with most, you know, quality attractions or even museum experiences, there is a level of investment which is necessary. And you need a certain amount of time to run that attraction to get your return on that investment. So, you know, unless you're doing sort of like a cheap, you know, cheap and cheerful haunted house thing for Halloween, for example, or something like that, can't really see that working so well. It's a short-term fix, isn't it? It's the short-term thing, which is, yeah, yeah, it's it's the short-term thing, which is the challenge. I mean, unless it's one of those things where you had a traveling exhibition, um, you know, like the, the body, for example, yeah. which is going places, but that's already all done. And the way they pay back their capital is if they do multiple locations over a year or two years or whatever. Uh, but to just set something up for three months and then go away, it's, it's really hard to make that work financially. Yeah, for sure. So if, if there were, if attractions are listening, which I hope that you are listening to this podcast, attractions, um, <laughs> what, are there any downsides to this for attractions? If this, if this is something that they're thinking of at the moment, mm. this merge, are there any downsides? Is this just a massive benefit? Can you, can you highlight anything? Well, I think it opens the opportunity up a lot more for, for attractions now in terms of the situation that we're currently in. But I think the the downside, I hate to say downside, it's not necessarily a downside, I think it's a challenge, is you're still going to be dealing with hardcore real estate professionals that, that, you know, every step of the way, you're going to have to justify, you know, your decisions and why you're doing this and explain to people who don't understand the attractions industry why you're doing the things that you do. And so that, you know, it is going to be an uphill battle for a while. There, There are people out there that are starting to get it. They really want to learn. They want to understand. And there are others that still just think in terms of, of square footage. And that's, and that's it. So that's probably the biggest single challenge. Um, I think the other sort of challenge is to be flexible. Be a bit more flexible, um, not about your business model. I mean, if, if it's a solid business plan, it's a solid business plan. But be flexible in regards to how it's funded. Because we also have to remember that a lot of these larger uh, retail developments or malls or shopping centers 
um, they want to be flexible now too, but they're owned by pension funds and REITs. And so it's not as easy as you think for them to find the money. And it's not that they don't want to help or work with you. It's just that they have to find a workaround to, to get there. And so I, I think that's probably the key lesson for both sides is that flexibility is key to make these deals work. And there is a way to make it work all the time, isn't there? I mean, for instance, just thinking about this whole mixture of, of, of retail and leisure, mm-hmm. there's now going to be a mixture of retail and rental. John Lewis is going to sell off some of its stores and they're mm-hmm. going to become housing, which is, I mean, it, it's kind of obvious, right? You, you could that see that sense. that was going to happen. Yeah. 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 It'd just be really interesting that people will now be living and shopping and ex- mm-hmm. these brilliant experiences all in one place. Yeah. You're kind of recreating the old city center in one sense, you know, before people started moving out to the suburbs and getting their houses and all that kind of stuff, you know, everything used to be just on top of each other. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. It's, uh-huh. It is fascinating to hear about what, what potentially could happen. It makes me feel really excited because I don't really like shopping that much. Oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> I, I can't stand shopping. This is the, this is the whole thing. I'm, I'm one of those people that, you know, if I have to go someplace, I have my list. I go in, I get it, and I get right back out again. I'm not one of those girly girls that loves to go shopping. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel exactly the same. And I do most of my shopping I do online now. But I do... I, I, I tell you, I do miss the experience of a brilliant shop. I don't want to just go and sh- to shop to get the basic stuff, but if there's something special that I want to buy, I love that feeling of it, it of going somewhere really wonderful where you just get this, you know, uh, incredible experience of someone looking after you or really tailoring that service to you. But I think that that is becoming less and less and less now. We're really lucky in the town that I live in that we we have a lot of independence, and you do you tend to get that in very yeah. small independent shops still, which is lovely. So yeah, I'll, I'll carry on shopping here, but I'll get my clothes online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about sustainability. Um, it is, it's on topic, but slightly off topic. It, I know it's something that you're really passionate about and it's something that we had a, a quick chat about when we, when we spoke before the podcast mm. in the fact that there's been an awful lot of really great work that's taken place in the last few years to, to kind of, I may, well, I mean, I personally be more sustainable about the things that I'm using in my own home, but the awareness of sustainability of of what we're, our surroundings are or what we're using. And unfortunately, the COVID pandemic has really, I think it's it's taken a step back for us, really, because there's an awful lot of single use plastics that are happening now that there's not there's not a lot that we can do to control that, unfortunately, at the moment. But I just wondered if you could share what your thoughts are around sustainability in the leisure industry. And because I think it's something that I really want to, I want to keep it current and not be forgotten about. And I think that's, that is actually the key thing. I mean, it's, um, people are shoving it aside. I mean, to be frank, you know, you look at the attractions industry, not everybody was doing a good job anyway. You know, there were quite a lot of, of parks that were perfectly happy to keep you know, giving plastic straws out until the government outlawed it or, you know, individual plastic cups or in some cases even, you know, styrofoam, God forbid, depending on the country you're in. There are some parks, though, that actually were, you know, leaders in regards to really taking sustainability seriously. Um, Port Aventura is a very good example of that. In Spain, you know, they they don't, their sustainability office is not the one that's tucked down at the end of the hallway, you know, behind the broom closet. Um, it's, it's actually quite, you know, important for them and it does shape every decision that they make. So not just in terms of, shall we have plastic cups or paper cups, 
But in regards to any sort of corporate decision, what's that impact going to be? You know, we need to take that into account. Um, so they've actually really integrated it into the decision-making process and into their education process as well. Uh, you know, where they're, you know, Oscar the Garage, for example, is their mascot that teaches all the kids about recycling. Um, so they've, they've really done a good job leveraging it. Um, and the Looping Group in France is another one as well. Uh, Lisa Berger, I mean, I, I, there are quite a few parks are starting to take it on board, but a lot of them hadn't fully embraced it. And I think the problem that we have now with COVID is that they found it too easy to slip backwards into their old habits. It's easier just to give, you know, single-use plastics to guests when they're coming in. You know, it, it's easy to say, oh, we use, have to use plastic gloves because we have to, you know, clean everything and, and keep it hygienic and all that kind of stuff. And then you have a bunch of plastic gloves all over the place yeah. or disposable masks and blaming it on COVID. And, and I'm not trying to blame them. I mean, it's been a very, very difficult season for the attractions. It's been incredibly challenging. And, you know, and I celebrate all of the, each and every one of them for actually reopening and doing what they could. But there is a question of let's not drop the ball on this one. You know, COVID will not be around forever. We don't know how long it's going to be. I don't have a crystal ball. You don't either. Um, but in five years time, hopefully it'll, it will have moved on with either a vaccine or some much better treatment options. And it will be back to normal. And there's no reason not to keep that planning going now. You know, to, to take this time now when things are slower, when capacity is down, and in some cases, a lot of the parks might be closing soon for the winter season anyway, you know, look at your strategy and look at your sustainability um, goals and how you're integrating them. You know, take the opportunity to, to take a step back and reassess uh, and make sure that you still keep with your targets so you know where you want to be in five years, even though right now you're dealing with what has to be dealt with. I guess that's the key thing that kind of concerns me a bit. I completely agree with you. And I think um, it's it, it's about when it's the right time to do that, isn't it? And I think, like you say, if we're coming to attractions have done anything and everything they can to to be open and to stay open for as long as possible this year Absolutely. understandably but I think yeah now now is the time to kind of take a little bit of a step back and say what are we doing and how can we make how can we improve that for when we reopen in a few months what can what can we do to improve that um we are going to have uh Holcomb Estates come on the podcast in mm. a few weeks which I'm really excited about and they're going to be talking about their sustainability plan uh, for 2021 so if you are interested in learning a little bit more about that and understanding what their plans are then definitely stay tuned yeah well I've loved having you on the podcast today thank you I do have one final question for you okay. um, which is a book recommendation so we ask all of our lovely guests if there's a book that they would recommend to our listeners that they either it's either help shape their career in some way mm-hmm. or just they love it for whatever reason so have you got one that you can recommend for us today um, I'm actually going to answer this in a completely different way. Ooh, uh, starting off by saying no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever done this before. You know. Know. <laughs> because, because, okay, let's be honest. The, the you know, traditionalists would probably say, oh, it's probably, you know, Buzz Price's book or it's, you know, the experience economy or any of that kind of stuff. And the truth is, no, they haven't shaped my career. Um, what did shape my career is the fact that when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I did it in economics and political science. And I read on, I read a book called the economics of Latin America. 
Um, and that got me very interested in Latin America. And that made me want to actually get into that from the political standpoint. So I went to go live in Spain for several years so I could learn Spanish. And while I was there, I got involved in the leisure and tourism industry in the sense that I used to run tours for all those bratty U.S. high school kids that do Europe in 10 days. Um, <laughs> Great job. Yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. And then I went back to the U.S. and I did my, uh, my MBA. But the thing is, what I got out of that was actually learning Spanish and becoming fluent in it. And that shaped my career more than anything else. Because it meant that I had much more mobility in my in my job. I was given responsibility for all of Latin America because I was the only senior staffer that actually spoke Spanish. Um, it's been incredibly useful here. You know, I also speak French. So it, I answered your question in a different way than what you expected, I think. Yeah, you did. But I love it. I love that you did that because... Um, I am trying, I'm attempting to learn Spanish myself at the moment, quite badly, um, mm. via Duolingo as well, mm. because I'm doing, Duolingo is an app, and you can do like five or ten minutes a day, yeah. and it, it, it's quite good in the sense that there are words that are sticking, but mm. there's nothing that beats going actually living, living in a country yeah. and learning yeah. it that way, is there? No, it's, it's 100%. I mean, I would say of all the things that I did, that is the one that probably shaped and helped my career more than anything else, was... Uh, with learning. I mean, I did, granted, I did know French before and anyway, but Spanish is, you know, after, you know, Mandarin, I think it's the second highest language in the world in terms of speaking. And so that just opens up so many doors. That's just ridiculous. So this is for me and not for our listeners. Sorry, listeners. So normally <laughs> we, um, we offer the, the chance for our listeners to win the book that's recommended. But if, um, okay, I'm going to ask you a question, but this is for me personally. I, I can't go to Spain right now, sadly. Mm. I'd love to. Mm. It's warm. Um, what else can I do to help improve my Spanish? What else could you recommend that would help me? Right. So one of the things, and I, I don't know if you can get this, but you might be able to on YouTube or something. One of the things that used to help me when I was living in Spain, I granted, remember, I had maybe one semester of Spanish. So I was, I was not doing well in the early, in the early months, was... I actually would watch American television shows dubbed in Spanish. Oh, that's a great idea. And, and the reason for that is they actually, you know, the Spanish language, the sentences are a lot longer normally. They speak a lot more quickly. Um, and Americans don't speak that quickly, with me as an exception, clearly. Um, but it was, I mean, it was the early days of 90210. So, yes, I'm dating myself now. Uh, but I would watch 90210 in Spanish, and that actually really helped. Um, and the other thing, which was, again, sounds really stupid, but I would ru- uh, read really cheesy Harlequin romances. I think here you call them something in Boone or... or oh, Mills and Boone. Yeah. Mills and Boone. Yeah. Um, because, again, not really difficult in terms of sentence structure. Love it. But then you could just kind of, you start reading it quickly and you start, see, you know, skimming and seeing the words and understanding what's happening because it's not challenging, to be honest. It's just a way to get it in. Yeah. Thank you. So, sorry, listeners, you don't get to win anything this episode, <laughs> but maybe you're trying to learn Spanish just like me and Yao has completely helped you out. So, you go. what I'm going to do. I'm going to find my favorite cheesy programs and I'm going to watch <laughs> them Spanish dubbed. There That's the way go. forward. That's the way to do it. Do I admit what my favorite? I was gonna. Do I admit what my favorite cheesy programs are? I'm not sure. I could. I could do for a bit of nine hundred two one zero though. That's. I was gonna say. I think 
I think you kind of have to admit it, given the fact that I admit it, I used to watch 90210. Mm, okay. Mm. I tell you what I'm loving at the moment. It's new, it's not retro, but I'm loving Cobra Kai on Netflix. If anyone's watching it, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, I am the retro queen. I am the 80s film queen. I will... I'm a really nostalgic person, so I'll listen, I'll watch those films over and over again. They just give me such a great sense of comfort. And I was a bit poorly last week, so I sat on the sofa with a duvet watching Karate Kid. <laughs> and then I was like, right, great. Well, I'm in the, I'm in the zone now. You're so the zone, you can go to Cobra Kai. Oh my God, it's so good. It's really good. <laughs> we're obsessed with it every night. We're just like, and the, the episodes are 25 minutes long. So perfect. Anyway, so completely off topic there. But... Completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for, for spending time with me today. I really enjoyed it. I, um, yeah. I'm going to put all of your contact details into the show notes. But mm-hmm. just for the listeners who aren't going to go and read those show notes, where's the best place that they can connect with you and find you? Um, either via our website. Um, they can just you know email directly from there or LinkedIn is probably best. Cool. And what's your website address? Leisuredevelopment.co.uk. There you go, kids. If you are listening and you want to chat with Yale, that is where to get her. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.